broadcasting from Doxu Village on Jeju Island. This is the Korea File, a weekly podcast about music, culture, and society from around the peninsula. I'm Andre Goulet. On this episode. Matt Van Volkenberg is an independent researcher on Korean urban space, film, and current events. His prolific blog, Gusts of Popular Feeling, celebrates its 10th anniversary this month. In the third of a three-part conversation, we talk about weed, rock music, and the counterculture in the police state of 1970s South Korea. used to be smoked in Korea, which it totally blew me away when I first heard about it. Um, uh, it was under the Park Jung-hee administration that uh, marijuana became illegal and the Korean counterculture was eradicated, basically. So tell me a bit about the genesis of that destruction. Well, I mean, one of the things is that, and I've heard this from especially from Peace Corps volunteers who were here in the 60s and 70s. Um, but I've also heard it from the Korean War that, um, you know, one account of uh, American POWs uh, and UN POWs up in North Korea was that uh, they were taught uh, basically to, how to find it and smoke it by Turkish soldiers. But then there's uh, Andy Salmon's book on, uh, uh, what was it? Uh, to the last round, but the, the British, the Gloucesters, who were wiped out uh, in uh, the Battle of the Imjin River in 1951. Uh, uh, I mean, they were wiped out because a lot of them were killed. The rest were all prisoners, and like maybe 40 out of a, a 600, 700-person unit managed to escape. And uh, the prisoners, one of them remembered uh, basically walking... The, the prison camps there didn't really have fences. It was just like, you're a white guy and there's mountains all around, you're not going very far. And so you can try, but no one ever succeeded in escaping, ever. So they just kind of had to accept, we have to stay here. And so they could kind of, they were free to kind of wander around and you know, try to you know, find small animals to supplement their diet or something. Um, but he said, uh, this, uh, he's walking along one day and a Korean farmer put out his long pipe and he's like, yeah, he kind of smoked it. And he's like, whoa, like, what's this? And he's just like, you know, farmer kind of patted him on the back and walked away. And the same with these stories I've heard from the, the Peace Corps volunteers where that um, one of them was uh, in the late 60s. Uh, all these people are working in the fields and there's a very old man. He's, he's too old to, uh, to work. And uh, he's just sitting there smoking his pipe, looking at uh, the people working. And he's kind of looking at the rice and he's like, look at the rice growing. And he's like, wait, what? What are you smoking? <laughs> and he's like, oh, it's Daima. And, um, you know, another story was the guy, uh, the health worker, because uh, there, were, there were two kinds of, uh, um, well, sort of three kinds of Peace Corps volunteers, either the English teachers uh, were the ones who came initially, and then later health, uh, the Bokunso health center workers, who especially worked with um, tuberculosis, and some also worked at the uh, uh, leprosariums. Um, but the the healthcare workers would travel to people's houses to do the tuberculosis testing and uh, yeah the one story was of they're sitting on the porch and they're of course under the eaves 
of the house, there's all these uh, plants drying and, and herbs. And he kind of looks up and says, what, what's that? And he's like, oh, yeah, that's marijuana. It makes you feel real good. He's like just an old man. And as uh, one of uh, these former volunteers told me, it was considered old people's medicine. Young people wouldn't touch it. Um, just, you know, it's old folk stuff. But with sort of the hippie culture sort of internationally spreading, it, it, Koreans started to get interested in it. But initially what happened was in, under the drug laws here, only uh, Indosan uh, Dema, or, which I, I, that would be essentially uh, hemp or marijuana from India, but I think that means maybe hashish, which I guess would have been imported. Um, only that was illegal. Hanguk-san Dema was not illegal. It was Korean fine. Meat. It was okay. It was fine. And the thing is, hemp was a, a fiber crop. It grew everywhere here. Mm. And, um, I mean, just, you know, uh, certain kinds of hanbok were made of it. It was just everywhere. And uh, in 1966, an American was arrested for the first time, an American soldier arrested, uh, and it was found he was smoking Korean-grown weed. And so you kind of see these articles going, really? I mean, really? Our, our Korean hemp could have uh, drug properties? Really? And um, so then it comes back a few weeks later, yes, we've done some testing, and actually it is. And apparently, about 67 or so, a law was put into the National Assembly, and it sat there for three years. No one was interested in it. Until in 1970, March 1970, two GIs, um, were apparently uh, pretty high at the time on like LSD, opium, and something else. And they, they went to their Korean drug dealers, a husband and wife, and uh, said, you know, give us some weed. And like, well, pay us. We don't have any money. Give it to us on credit. No. So they stabbed them to death. So they were the first, um, eventually, they were the first GIs to be um, sentenced to death for, for murder. Under a military tribunal? Uh, under Korean law. Under Korean law, you know, under SOFA. Yeah, it was a oh. Korean court found them guilty. Uh, their defense was to say that SOFA does not apply to us because SOFA is not, uh, you know, it, it's, it shouldn't even exist. It, it's uh, an unjust law. It's an unjust agreement. And it, and it basically, you do not have any authority over us, Mr. Judge. And I'm like, wow, that's a really bad way to... Because <laughs> Korean courts are all based on, you know, appealing to the judge for you know, mercy and, and acknowledging the, the authority. But we um, can understand why American soldiers wouldn't feel obligated to <clears throat> uh, kowtow like that. Yeah. But did they receive a death penalty? It was commuted to life in prison. And I don't know how long they served. I'm, I'm not sure. Okay. So from this, uh, we already have Park Chun-hee in power. Um, all of this began to lead to a sort of negative perspective on, on weed. But not immediately. The thing was, I mean, you, you see these reports, and here you kind of realize that the English language press, Stars and Stripes and the Korea Times, is just as important as getting the story as the Korean language press, because you know it involved foreigners, so getting their point of view is, is rather important. And it seems the American um, military, possibly the embassy, this, this is where I think it would be really useful to get Freedom of Information Act and go through and see what exactly was being said. Um, I've basically gone through all the media. Um, but the Americans apparently were pressuring Korea to pass this law that had been sitting on 
you know, in the National Assembly for three years and make marijuana illegal. And finally, in July 1970, it is made illegal. It comes into effect in November 1970. Really interesting thing that I realized later when I started looking through the media reports is that in June 1970, basically what happened is America is putting pressure on Korea, but Korea has its national pride. It doesn't want to look like it's just doing America's bidding. So what happens is, it's fascinating, you look at the number of articles and there's like nothing on marijuana and suddenly basically all on the same week, like every newspaper starts writing about this huge marijuana problem. So they basically just created this problem in the media <coughs> to make it look like, oh, we need to pass a law, we need to do something about this. All these students are smoking it, oh my God. So at the same time that this sort of um, war on drugs, cultural adaptation in Korea was happening, there was also the uh, cultural influence of the music that was being played in the States at the time. And Korea had some awesome rock and roll. Yep. Um, so what was the scene like in the 70s here? Um, I think it goes through several phases. Um, like the government started to crack down on it in the early 70s. Um, but yeah, certainly, you know, you, you can't listen to some of the music uh, Shin Jung-hun was making, say, in 1972, and not go, <laughs> yeah, I mean, come on, he's definitely smoking some pot here. Because it's really, really good yeah, people might not know it, it was really excellent music. Uh, Shin Jung Hyun and the Men was one of his bands. Oh, he yeah. also played solo. Yeah. Um, who were some of the other musicians playing at that time? Do you know? Um, that's the thing. A lot of the really like the the best music was being made by Shin Jung Hyun. He had many different bands over the years. Um, like nineteen, was it the Donkeys was one of his early bands. Like his first big hit was. Um, uh, with the Pearl Sisters, two high school girls. And after that, that became a... Up until then, rock and roll wasn't popular. Up until 68, uh, uh, Nima by the Pearl Sisters comes out, and suddenly everyone's like, this is awesome music, and everyone wants to record with them. And he basically, you know, he wrote the songs. He's kind of like Korea's Beatles, because he wrote all these amazing songs and the lyrics. And he's also Korea's Jimi Hendrix or whatever, if you want to do the Korea's whatever thing. Because he's a great guitarist. He's an amazing guitarist. Yeah. He also is, he produced them. He's Korea's Phil Spector in that <laughs> way. And in that, Phil Spector had this whole stable of different artists that he would record with. He eventually, um, he works with these different bands. The Donkeys, the, the Golden Grapes are quite good. Uh, I think the men were, I think, easily the best. The, the most popular were the, the Yupjuns, the Coins. Uh, in 1974... Uh, he starts this new band, and instead of having other singers who always kept abandoning him, um, he just sings himself. And he doesn't have the greatest voice in the world, but um, that's a really great band. Uh, they had uh, Kwon Yong Nam, who was an amazing drummer, and like their rivals were um, in the early '60s were the Key Brothers, right. uh, who also came out of the the Miguk Mude, the uh, American bass. Uh, uh, musicians. So it wasn't. It was not literally a one-man scene. There was other music happening, and it sort of refl reflected the group sounds happening in Japan at the time. Um, so there were bands happening and a hot scene, but Shin Jung Hyun was the big, the big one. Yeah. Um, so how mm. did the government at the time uh, sort of focus on him as the root of the weed smoking evil, as they perceived it? Well. I think um, 
they, the music went through different phases. There was a, a go-go club phase where kids would go out and like dance all night at these clubs, especially in like an Itaewon. one. Um, and during the curfew, even like, they would just kind of close the doors and keep at it secretly. And um, though. Yeah, that was kind of popular with the kids so the musicians that you know the kids just want easy stuff to listen to they weren't playing really awesome music they were just kind of playing stuff that people like to dance to um, they kind of had this whole phase going on especially in Itaewon Itaewon was known as a place where a lot of Koreans would go and you know you could smoke pot and it was a lot of fun it was kind of free and so, so actually it was kind of a badass fun town oh yeah was it also Sleazeville or oh yeah okay it was I mean <laughs> well Itaewon is especially until 1972, I think, uh, when the ASCOM base in Bupyong and Incheon closed. ASCOM is? Uh, I forget. American it, Services. Um, it, it's a, it was a big um, <coughs> organizing center where a lot of material would be brought into mm. Korea and then distributed. Uh, it was originally a Japanese base, so, um, like many of the American bases were originally Japanese bases. Um, but scenes would grow up around these bases. Um, yeah, I mean the yeah. You, initially, you had the the sort of different companies that would be kind of given contracts and would send people, and it was all organized with the Americans. And like the the best bands would be sent to some, kind of like the top places, and the other ones to lower lower tier places. And other ones, I think, you know, would play in the the villas around uh, the bases. Was the rock music scene marketed through sort of uh, American talent people or? No, I mean, I know there are some American soldiers who like the music, who bought the records. Mm. Um, but I think it was mostly a... Once you kind of had the Pearl Sisters come in in 68, it became a very Korean thing. And, I mean, they would play around... So that was one way to certainly to make money, was to play around the, the, the U.S. bases. But, um, so, so how did... How did uh, governmentally and legally, how did this turn into not only an illegalization of weed, but also a crushing of an entire sort of counterculture uh, Korea in the 70s. Well, essentially, like I said before, um, America was making Korea pass this law in 1970. Um, what you find out, and so the Korean government obviously was controlling the press, and the press suddenly reports, like, oh my God, it's a big problem, so they make it illegal. But then when you look at the re arrest reports over the next few years... Very occasionally, Koreans are arrested, but usually it's soldiers are arrested, or Korean drug dealers dealing to soldiers are arrested, or Korean prostitutes who are with the GIs who are smoking are arrested. It's all based around the Kijichons. They're not looking anywhere else. They're just trying to make the Americans happy. But they're also victimizing the soldiers or sort of making bad guys out of uh, weed-smoking soldiers. I don't know how much... That's, that's an interesting question. I haven't really thought about that or looked into that so much. Um, the, the main takeaway that I've gotten from this is that Koreans didn't really know it was illegal. It was technically illegal, and but like a lot of laws in Korea, it wasn't enforced except in the Kijichons. And then... Kijichons are the areas the, around the bases. Yeah. And... Um, so they would enforce the law there, but Koreans otherwise didn't really know. And even Stars and Stripes in 1970, after it was made illegal, um, went out uh, to like uh, Myeongdong and Chungmuro and Itaewon and, and university campuses, and they, they interviewed students, and they were like, so, you know, we were hearing all this stuff about, like, kids are smoking a lot of pot, and so, you know, 
what do you think about that to the students? They're like, no, like it's not something we're interested in. Um, and they went to you know Myeongdong or uh, Chungmuro to try and score some, and it's like, no, we didn't have any luck. And so, but these media reports are saying it's this huge. Like, no, so, it so wasn't. Weed, so weed was basically just like out in the countryside, musicians sometimes, and people near military bases. And, and U.S. soldiers, especially. But the government used this as a tool to uh, suppress what they perceived as a countercultural movement. And because, I mean, you had some... When it finally struck, uh, the thing is, it has to be seen, I think. Like in 1974-75, you have the emergency measures. And like the, the first emergency measure by Park Chung-hee was to make it illegal to criticize the Yushin, Yushin Constitution. Uh, the Constitution was the um, the Constitution that he put in in 1972 that made him basically dictator for life. Okay, so you couldn't you couldn't criticize that, and um, so that was emergency measure number nine. Uh, number one, uh, my favorite I think was emergency measure number nine, which made it illegal to criticize emergency measure number one, which. If you want to put it another way, it's the emergency measure that made it illegal to criticize the emergency measure that made it illegal to criticize the Yushin Constitution. It's hard to choose just one emergency measure to love, <laughs> so I'm happy that you boldly went there. Um, this led to a complete suppression of everything counterculture in Korea at the time. Well, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, it, not so much counterculture, but it, it, it was just cracking down on any criticism of the government. And I, a lot of the music wasn't really critical at all. I mean, the music was always controlled by the government in that you had to submit what songs you're putting on the album before it could be released. And the government also uh, had a... What was it? Kayo, um, uh, The healthy music. Every album had to have one song on it that was like a healthy song. And most people never listened to those songs because they were garbage. And, um, but the government required this. And so, healthy song means something like socially uplifting. Yeah, okay. and like let's all work together. I mean, like Park Chung Hee wrote the same owl uh, nore oh, uh, when he started the same owl undong to the new village movement to improve the the conditions in the countryside. But I mean, every morning on the speaker in the middle of the village, the same owl nore would would play and dun 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 dun. dun. And I mean, I've talked to. Peace Corps volunteers are like, I don't know how many times I wanted to go out and cut that goddamn wire to that speaker, because at five in the morning it would start, right? And so they were enforcing this in the music. They could always look at the music beforehand and say, like, no, you, you, we, want, we don't like the title of that song, change the lyrics. It was all very strictly controlled. Um, so, you know, there was never um, any outright criticism, though... He was trying to control the Western influence himself, though, too. So it, it didn't matter that they were, like, whether or not the lyrics reflected, like, Western influence, like, the music did, really. Mm -hmm. So he wasn't trying to put stuff to that. Not initially. Okay. But, um, the... Um, he did around the crackdown, the time of the crackdown when it started in 1975, he certainly uh, banned a number, like a hundred or more uh, Western songs that he thought were uh, very bad influences on the youth. <coughs> and, you know, um, you can actually, what, what got me interested in this was that uh, uh, Mark Russell, who's written a, a lot about entertainment and uh, in its history in Korea, and has a great book called uh, Pop Goes Korea. Um, uh, he found and posted on his blog a propaganda film from 1975 and the interesting thing is is that this is it comes out in late November 
basically just days before the crackdown begins. And uh, it's on a site called um, ehistory.co.kr, I think. And, and it kind of, you know, it starts with this long-haired guy wandering around the streets of like Myeongdong or something, staggering around and sort of like marijuana. And it's all about him getting out of jail. I mean, it's, 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 it's really funny to watch. I think a lot of it unintentionally, but um, he gets out of jail after, you know, being arrested and his, his mother's trying to console him and he's crying when he sees his father and his father's kind of pushing the wife away. Yeah, go away, go away. I'm just, I'm consoling the son now. Just, just giving a little pack on, pat on the back here and just go away, honey. Let us have our moment here. And then he goes and he confronts his friends as they pull out a joint to smoke. Like, no, do you know how bad this is? <laughs> and then, you know, he gives, he tells the story of how they were hanging out and then they're climbing a mountain and smoking and their one friend falls to his death over a cliff and they're like, no. And, um, and then, you know, a doctor explains how, you know, pulls down you know, the charts and everything and you know, your brain will fall out if you smoke marijuana kind of stuff. And, so uh, it wasn't really a clamping down on the counterculture so much as it was just another means of control. But what happened was um, basically all the movers and shakers, uh, Kim, uh, well, Shin Jung Hyun, uh, Kim Chu Ja, who was one of the big singers at the time, who had been one of his protégés, uh, Lee Jung Hee, um, who he was originally a folk singer, and then as the 70s progressed, his music got a lot funkier and experimental and interesting. And um, he did the soundtrack to the movie Biel de Li Gohyang, The Home of the Stars, which was based on a popular novel. It was the, the first film directed by Yi Chang Ho, who would go on to direct a, a lot of interesting films, including my favorite, just one of my favorite films ever, uh, Babo Sanan, The Declaration of Fools. Um, that's amazing, amazing movie from uh, 1982. Um, but at this point, this was his first movie, but it really, I mean, it's sort of the first hostess movie and this girl who's very badly treated after she comes to the countryside, and this became a trope throughout the 70s, but this was sort of the first movie to do that. But it also has, and it, you know, it becomes this very sad melodrama, but it, it has these great actors in it, and it really kind of captures, you know, they, they go to a, like a club where a band is playing, and it really kind of captures the spirit of that kind of time and of what sort of what counterculture could be there. And it was a massive success. It was the biggest Korean film ever. And so yeah, I don't think the government liked that very much. And uh, so basically during the crackdown, I mean, he's arrested, uh, Lee Jong-hee. Uh, Lee Jong-ho, the director, is arrested. Uh, all these other musicians are arrested, comedians, entertainers. And the thing is, once they're arrested, um, there are a number of bands that put on them like they were all supposed to be part of this entertainment guild and so they're kicked out of the entertainment guild so you can't perform anymore and they also kind of said oh, anyone who's been arrested can no longer release records so this is how they went and destroyed all these people's careers they basically they said since you've been arrested for this you can no longer work you can no longer put anything out into the public realm and so that's how they went about basically destroying all of that and, uh, and after that I mean the music got a, a lot safer, and as Shin Jung Hun put it, 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 it was uh, they took all this of uh, the, the guts and the spirit out of the music and replaced it with let's all work hard and like sappy love songs and and people don't even know what music is anymore. <laughs>
That's the Korea file for this week. You can find new episodes up every Wednesday on iTunes and Stitcher and as a feature contributor at blogtalkradio.org. You can find Matt's online work at populargusts.blogspot.kr. Tune in next week for an interview and live performance with operatic metal weirdos Sour Gherkin. Doxu Village on Jeju Island. I'm Andre Goulet.